This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour open-line talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. To express your viewpoint, please call 804-754-1988. That's 804-754-1988. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Can America be fixed? That was the interesting headline in Israel National News, the latest issue, with the subtitle, Faith in God Must Be Restored, It is Sorely Lacking. It was a piece written by Dr. Joseph Frager, a Jewish man, again, published in the latest issue of Israel National News. Can America be fixed? Now, why were they concerned about that? Why would this doctor, a Jewish doctor, be concerned about that? Well, here's what he says. Family values must make a serious comeback in America. Without strong family bonds and loyalty, society goes into a freefall. Faith in God must be restored. It is sorely lacking. Can America be fixed? It'll take time and strong leadership. He said, I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, cautiously optimistic is a very nice way, a politically correct way to say, I doubt it. But I hope. And today on Viewpoint, we ask the same question, can America be fixed? Well, is that what God's concern is, that America be fixed? Or is it God's concern that Americans be fixed? That Americans be living a godly life amid these times that try men's souls? That's the real question before us here today on Viewpoint. Even though this broadcast is sponsored by Save America Ministries, people would say, well, why would you say something like, it doesn't really make all that much difference if America can be fixed? Well, the reason is because God is not a respecter of nations in that sense. He's committed himself to honor and bless those that will bless him. I will bless, honor those that honor me, said the Lord through Samuel the prophet. So if we're not honoring the Lord, then what are we doing? What is all this about anyway? Well, today on Viewpoint, we want to talk about that. But we also want to talk about it in the context of these actual days in which we're living. In front of me is a piece written by Pastor Greg Laurie. Pastor Greg Laurie is the pastor of a very large congregation in Southern California, and uh, he writes this interesting piece. By the way, if you're not aware of it, Greg Laurie was one of the feature characters in the most recent movie, The Jesus Revolution, because he came to the Lord as a result of the Jesus Revolution there with Chuck Smith, the senior in uh, Southern California. Well, he now is pastor of this very large congregation in Riverside, California, and he writes a piece on World Net Daily titled, Walking with God in the Last Days. Walking with God in the Last Days. So that's what we want to focus on here for the balance of the program today, and I hope that this program will be very encouraging to you. Yes, there's a lot of discouraging things going on out there, a lot. And we would be rightly rightly discouraged if, in fact, God called us to be discouraged. But the Bible says, my servant, speaking of Christ, 
will not be discouraged. Joshua, a forerunner of Christ, bearing the same similar name, was told by God to be strong and courageous and to not be dismayed, for the Lord his God would be with him wherever he went. Do you believe that the Lord God would be with you wherever you are amid these last days, as Greg Laurie has proclaimed? He said it's clear that we're living in the last days. Now, this is a very strong statement coming from the pastor of such a large church who isn't necessarily prone to make statements like this. Have you noticed increasingly across the country, more and more pastors and parachurch leaders and so on are, in fact, voicing similar kinds of words? It's clear that we're living in the last days, he said. So here's the question. What should we be doing in light of that? He says the Bible tells us about a man named Enoch who was living during the end times of his own day because he lived in the period before the flood, before God judged planet Earth the first time. Enoch had what might be described as a solo rapture. He personally was caught up to meet the Lord, and there was no other illustration of the Bible like that. But here's what the Old Testament book of Genesis says about Enoch. When Enoch was 65 years old, he became the father of Methuselah. And after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch lived in close fellowship with God for another 300 years. Enoch lived 365 years, all told, walking in close fellowship with God. And then one day, the Bible says, God took him. So from that, we, we get four truths, as uh, Greg Laurie explains, from Enoch's life that are relevant for you, for me, for believers living in these last days. First, we need to walk with God. And we need to live lives that are pleasing to God. And if we want to walk with God, then we need to be in sync with Him. Obviously, as the Bible says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? So walking with God doesn't mean running ahead of Him or lagging behind Him. It means staying in sync with him. That's what I try to do when I walk with my wife and she walks with me. Christians should have appointments with God. Every day, we should have an appointment to read the Bible and pray, and we need to keep our appointments. My wife and I do that every single day and have committed to do that for the past about 30 years now. We need to keep our appointments. Not only did Enoch walk with God, but he also lived a life that was pleasing to God. So the Bible tells us it was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He just disappeared. A solo rapture, because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. Are you known as a person that pleases God? How about your walk with the Lord? Every day, we face three possible motivations, says Greg Laurie, about who we are to please. You can please yourself, you can seek to please other people, or you can seek to please God, but you can't do all three. So, if we choose to please God, not everybody is going to be happy about it. If we live a godly life and stand for truth, we're going to face opposition. 
And the Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. So, like Enoch, we need to walk with God in the days that you and I are living in. And we should want to live lives that are pleasing to him and conduct ourselves accordingly. Well, this matter of walking with God has really gripped my heart. It's gripped my heart because of a very unusual piece of music that is just running over and over and over and over in my mind and heart. And I want to share it with you here today on Viewpoint. No, I'm not going to sing it. Love to, but I'm not going to. I'll let somebody else communicate it to you. And you won't be disappointed. We'll be right back. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. Standing firm amid rising darkness. Those are the words from Dr. Robert Jeffress, who's joined us many times here on the program. He says, how can Christians stand firm as darkness is rising? How can it? Well, one way, we can not only stand, but we can walk with God. But what does that mean? What does it really mean to walk with God? to walk with him in spirit and in truth. You know, if you're on the outs with your spouse, you're not likely to want to walk together, are you? No, you're not likely to want to walk together, and certainly you're not likely to want to hold hands together because you're out of sync with one another. An awful lot of professing Christians are out of sync with the Lord. They're just not prepared to walk with him in spirit and in truth. As the song in the garden said, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. Well, many Christians are coming to the garden alone and they're leaving on the loan because Christ isn't meeting with them, as the song indicates. They don't hear his still small voice. They don't feel his presence. They're not really walking with him in spirit and in truth. They're pretenders. They're churchgoers. They're people who claim certain theological truths or claim that they've made an encounter with God at a Billy Graham rally or by raising their hand in some uh, revival meeting somewhere or signing a card or whatever, but they're just not walking with God and certainly not like Enoch. But friends, as we are moving inexorably toward the second coming of Christ, which all of these leaders are saying, we're just in that moment of time right now. So let's just own up to it. We're in that time. Now what? What are we going to do? How are we going to stand in the evil day? And how are we going to do more than just stand? How are we going to press forward in real life, in real time, truly being salt and light? We're going to have to walk with God. We're not going to run so much, we'll run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Yes, 
We're going to do that. But we want to walk with him and talk with him. And we don't want to have our ears all clogged up with uh, social media and all kinds of noise coming in through electronic and digital devices. We want to be able to hear his voice. Dr. Robert Jeffress says, why hasn't Jesus come back again? It's not that he's slow about keeping his promise, as some have said. It's so that some more may repent and find eternal life. God's delaying judgment to give people a chance to repent. Even those who profess his name, he's given a chance to repent. But unfortunately, said Jeffers, so many Christians don't understand that. They don't understand their role in the culture right now. Christians either go to one of three extremes. Two of the extremes, one is correct. Some Christians, when it comes to other the culture, they decide to isolate themselves from the culture. Other Christians go to the opposite extreme. Instead of isolating themselves from the culture, they identify with the culture and are running with the culture and walking with the culture and becoming the culture. So they adopt the values of the culture. But God says we're to be distinctive. We're to influence the world, but not have the world influence us. So Jeffers concludes with these words, ladies and gentlemen. The reason we push back against the culture, the reason we push back against evil is not to save America. Did you know, as Christians, we have not been called to save America? That's not the call of the Church of Jesus Christ. Any nation that reverences God will be blessed by God, and any nation that rejects God, including the United States, will be rejected by God. By the way, these are powerful statements coming from Dr. Robert Jeffress, who was heavily involved in the 2016 election. Our call is not to save America. Our call is to save Americans. Friends, if you've never understood this before, he is expressing precisely what the existence and purpose of this ministry is for. It's not about saving America as a corporate entity. It's about saving Americans because we are called we the people. So our call is to save America from the coming judgment of God by introducing them to faith in Christ and helping them to walk with Christ. So he says, listen, if your goal in life is peace, prosperity, pleasure, the avoidance of any kind of pain, if that's your real goal in life, these are terrible times in which to be alive. These are truly frightening days, he says. You have every right to be fearful. Well, yeah, you do have every right to be fearful. But that's not where God wants to leave us. He doesn't want to leave us as fearful people because fear has torment. And so that brings us to the song to which I alluded. And I want to encourage you with this song. And it has a history to it. It has a wonderful history to it. The year was 1951, as I recall. There was a fella who was uh, an Italian, a young Italian singer named Constantine Kalanikos. He came to America and changed his name, adopting his mother's name, Mario Lanza. And that's what he's known by, Mario Lanza. Well, the interesting thing about Mario Lanza is that 
people began to realize he had the most extraordinary voice, perhaps one of the most extraordinary voices in the world. So extraordinary was his voice that he actually was placed in the role to fill the place of Enrico Caruso, who had passed away. It was a movie around Enrico Caruso's life. He was deemed to be the greatest voice that ever had graced this planet. That is until Mario Lanza. So Mario Lanza played Enrico Caruso in the movie, in America. It was the best-selling movie of that time, believe it or not. Well, that's not all. As a result of his growing prominence, because of this amazing voice, he was asked to take the leading role in another movie called The Student Prince. The Student Prince. Actually, it was a German opera, but it was put into a movie by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and the key song of that movie was to be sung by Mario Lanza. It's called I'll Walk With God. Maybe you've heard it. I remember hearing it early on in my life, and it inspired me early on in my life. I'll Walk With God. It inspires listeners by reminding them of the importance of faith and hope and trust in the face of life's challenges. Although I'll Walk With God originated from the Western operatic tradition, its message of faith and devotion transcends cultural boundaries, and the song resonates with audiences all over the world. Over the years, there have been a number of different artists who have, have sung the song I'll Walk With God to honor the song's timeless and universal message. That song's timeless message continues to inspire yours truly, reminding me and us that even the darkest moments, in the darkest moments, we never walk alone. And so I want you to listen carefully. As best we can transmit this to you here on the air today, I'll never, or I'll walk from God, I'll walk with God, the key of the movie, The Student Prince. This time, not sung by Mario Lanza, but by Russell Watson, who I think will come through a little clearer for you today. Please listen and be encouraged.
never walk alone while we walk with God. But what does that mean to walk with God? What in the world does it mean to walk with God? I remember another wonderful song. Somewhat of a haunting song for me, very encouraging. It was sung actually by Elvis Presley. You'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. When you walk through the storm, keep your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. So walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain. Though your dreams be tossed and thrown, walk on with on with hope in your heart that you'll never walk alone. You'll never, ever walk alone. Now that's God's promise to you and to me. May those lyrics resonate in your mind and heart, perhaps connected with some of the melody. I'll walk with God from this time on. You'll never walk alone. Another song, I'll never walk alone because Christ walks beside me. There's something about this walk business that's very precious to the mind and heart of God, and it needs to be more precious to you and to me as we see the signs of the times wrapping their arms around us. Well, maybe not with such encouragement. In fact, as we move into the second half of the program today, we're going to take a look at what's happening even within our families and within our churches. Today, I was writing once again concerning my new book, When Persecution Comes. I'm writing a very lengthy chapter addressed to parents and then also to pastors. Very seldom is any effort made to truly address parents and pastors with regard to the issues of persecution. And there are reasons for that. Because generally, parents and pastors don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. But it's very real. And here's the headline. A sign of the times when persecution comes from within the church. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, on the front page are two great videos. First, an interview and discussion of Chuck's book, Out of Egypt. Also, a great TV interview with Chuck regarding his book, Seduction of the Saints. Much more videos, a For Pastors Only section, and also you can view Chuck's weekly teachings. All at his website, saveus.org. That's saveus.org. Also on Chuck's website, listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast. Listen to the archives. Maybe you missed a program. Check it out at saveus.org. Also, there are some great resources, hospitality information, also information about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, newsletters, articles, prophecy, prayer and revival information, all at saveus.org. A sign of the times when persecution comes from within the church. 
Very interesting. How about when persecution comes within the family? Another article before me, what the Bible says about persecution from family members. Jesus' words in Luke chapter 14, in the warnings of possible costs to people, to parents, to children, grandparents, he says that we have to expect the loss of the respect and association of those that we feel the most affection for, even family members. They're not going to appreciate the changes we've made in our lives. They are yet blinded because God has not removed the veil covering their spiritual perceptions. And this happens to many, many of us. Jesus warned that our lives may become seriously unstable, as outsiders might judge it. He suggests that the convert may become somewhat itinerant, seeming to have an unsettled existence. He also suggests that following him would put demands on our lives and time that might cut close family members to the quick, perhaps even turning them into enemies. Christ makes play that, despite God's well-known mercy, he wants our wholehearted, unreserved loyalty with no yearning ever to turn back in our former lives. It's in meeting challenges like these that the potential costs become reality. Persecution within families, persecution within churches. Unfortunately, that's what we're really dealing with now, increasingly, and perhaps you're actually dealing with it in your own life. Are you? Are you dealing with it in your own life? Well, today on Viewpoint, again, we're going to take a look at this, and I'm glad, as I said, that you have joined us. I want to share some words with you from the manuscript, handwritten manuscript that I have just uh, penned to the paper uh, this very day. It's in the chapter called Parents and Persecution, Preparing. Persecution from within the flock, whether from family or the purported family of God, is perhaps the most painful and lamentable of all, precisely because it breeds what we believe, it uh, breaches rather, what we believe were trusting relationships. Both Jesus and King David, a man after God's own heart, experienced such horrific betrayal. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, a part of the disciple family. With a kiss of death, David was betrayed by Ahithophel, his deeply trusted friend, advisor, and confidant, that would have consigned David to death at the betrayal of David's own son, Absalom. Here was a double betrayal, a treasonous conspiracy against the very one upon whose eternal throne the Lord of glory was to rule and reign. Interestingly, Almost David's entire nation, the ten northern tribes of Israel, ultimately rose up against the continuity of David's God-ordained reign. And in the same fashion, Christ, as the seed of David, was violently rejected by his own nation, of which he was the sole obedient representative. As it is written, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came to bring life and redemption to his people to do the will of his Father, 
but they most wanted no part of that. They cried instead, give us Barabbas, a murderer, and let Christ be crucified. And perhaps now we can better understand the significance of Jesus' warning words to us. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Well, unfortunately, the persecution of which Jesus warned was not only from without, but also from within. Within families and gatherings of purported followers of Christ himself. No true and faithful parent or pastor desires such painful persecution born of betrayal, revealed in outright rejection of all or many aspects of the Christian faith. But it is even now shockingly being progressively revealed throughout the West and America. Individual converts to Christ have, for two millennia now, experienced rejection and violent retributive reaction from family and clan and culture, but seldom have Christian families in the so-called Christian West experienced this vitriolic attitude increasingly displayed by family members, causing perplexity among parents and serious-minded pastors. What's happening? Why is this new phenomenon invading our homes, causing a breakdown of communication and fractured relationships, jeopardizing any binding fraternal spirit, and devastating any sincere and long-term hope for the eternal salvation of those we love. It's the intensity of this phenomenon seeming to sweep like a tsunami over our homes and fellowships that reveals the reality of Jesus' warning of this very development before his return. But what faith-threatening forces are collectively amassing this assault? What are the expected consequences? And how? must we respond both in spirit and in truth? Well, before we can attempt an answer to these questions, we have to be frank concerning our Lord's descriptive warning of this otherwise frightening scene of severe persecution from within otherwise trusting relationships. Take a deep breath and then consider the reality many are now facing or will soon face confident that it is God who will work in and through us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, yes, even when unrighteously persecuted. Unrighteously persecuted. So I ask you the question, friends, have you experienced any of this within your family yet? I guarantee you we have. I guarantee you we have, and we know of many other families who have and are. There are various levels of it. A complete change of moral and spiritual outlooks that are contrary to the word, the will, and the ways of God and pitting parents against children, children against parents and against grandparents. But here's what Jesus said. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren, and kinsfolks and friends, and some of you they shall cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. In your patience possess ye your souls. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues, churches. Yes, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think or reason that he's doing God a service. So perhaps we need to take an honest look at the real but insidious forces invading our homes and families that are creating attitudes and behaviors that are bringing chaos and distress, thus establishing an environment leading to eventual persecution of family members. You're listening to Viewpoint, friends. And our viewpoint concerning this issue of persecution, it's not just something happening in foreign countries. It may seem very foreign, but it's entering our own country and our own homes. The places of refuge that you and I thought that we had, where we were in agreement, where we had trust in one another and in our respective beliefs, but it ain't so anymore. It just ain't so. And that's true even for people who, kids who have been raised in Christian homes and who have been go gone to Christian schools, including Christian colleges and universities. And it's even worse for those that have not. Education has been replaced by indoctrination. Culture has replaced Christ, and the pursuit of happiness has replaced holiness. And in the second section, the last segment of the program here today, we want to focus particularly on persecution within the church. Yes, we have it in the family, but it's in the church too. And the reason it's in the church is because it's in the family. And the reason it's in the family is because it's also in the church. Parents are afraid to deal with it. Pastors are afraid to deal with it. And everybody has become a people pleaser. It's almost as if we're not really walking with God. Because if we were, we would be in a total agreement with him, wouldn't we? If we were really walking with God we'd be in total agreement with him. When we get back, we're going to listen to Amira Willigan as she sings also, I'll walk with God. I'll walk with God. You see, this message is so important right now. I personally need the encouragement of these words. I personally need the encouragement of the lyrics and the music and the passion. Perhaps you don't know. Then when Mario Lanza was hired by Metro-Golden-Mayer to sing that special, unique part in the opera, the student prince. The head of MGM fired him after he did the voice track because he said it was too 
compassionate. Did you hear that? When Mario Lanza sang, I'll walk with God, it was too passionate. Is that what some of your friends think about you? That you're too passionate? Or are you not passionate enough? We'll be right back. This is you. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by His Spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, Behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Welcome back to Viewpoint. Before we begin looking at the uh, insult of persecution within the church and how it is coming about, we want to hear again the words of this wonderful song, I'll Walk with God, this time from Amira Willigan. I trust that the selection that says that it is her uh, walk with God is indeed that. Here we go.
I'll never walk alone while I walk with God. That was a duet with Amira Willigan and South African tenor, Lukeano Moyaki. What a beautiful rendition. You see, this, these words, these lyrics, and that music is as if it were ordained by God to communicate to us and on our behalf for this unique time in history. And very, very much like Handel's Messiah that was given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to George Frederick Handel in the mid-1700s. And since then, since before the French Revolution has been heard and played and sung all over the world every single year to prepare the world for history's final hour and the second coming of Jesus Christ. But before the second coming of Jesus Christ comes, shall we say, the second coming of massive persecution. Jesus said it was going to take place. It was going to take place in families. And because it takes place in families, it reverberates into our church gathered. So, another article before me here. A sign of the times when persecution comes from within the church. Gilbert, Grayson Gilbert wrote this piece a few years ago. He said, it stems from what I believe is a weak theology of suffering. Out of that weak theology of suffering comes an inability to willingly and joyfully endure our present sufferings. The American gospel, he said, has so long imbibed a gospel message devoid of telling people of the cost it takes to follow Christ. And the reason I believe this is so is that many do not believe it themselves. They've yet to see the hardship and suffering Christ says is part and parcel to following him. We're more inclined to see the kind of luxury suffering indicative of a soft generation as suffering for our faith. We sense it to be suffering when we're passed over for a promotion. We don't have as many friends as we once had because of our Christian convictions. Weren't able to find a spouse and so on and so forth. In other words, we confuse the natural results of living as a Christian in the midst of a broken and fallen world with genuine suffering and persecution. But this is not the way the Bible portrays suffering for the sake of the gospel. He goes on to say, By and large, many Christians confuse temptation with suffering, and therefore they have no accurate category for how to deal with legitimate forms of persecution for the sake of the gospel. In the same breath, many have swung so far to the opposite extreme so as to say that the mental assault on believers isn't a form of persecution. These people tend to surmise that the only valid form of suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel is physical persecution. But in either case, you find a people who are unable to think biblically about these things, and the fruit of either position is to avoid suffering at all costs. One side will claim suffering is of the accuser, while the other side will claim suffering is of our own concoction. Neither are prepared to handle it when it inevitably comes. And sadly, when it does come, many fall away because of their foundation is not built upon counting the necessary costs 
of following Christ on his road to the cross. To put it another way, one sees persecution behind everything, while the other sees persecution behind nothing. And both will be completely blindsided when they actually experience any kind of suffering firsthand. When the church is not on guard and equipped to deal with these things, it's only a matter of time before they savagely rip one another to shreds with their teeth. He concludes by saying, I firmly believe that we will soon see those professing to be Christians turn on other Christians in order to save themselves, and it's already starting to happen. As in the days of Micah, we have come to the point where we ought to heed the imperative that we do not trust in a neighbor, do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies become those of his own household. What this means is that we're coming to a point where the church itself is the place where we ought to expect persecution rather than just the culture that we live in. Time is swiftly coming, where few men and women of honor will remain. Christ himself quoted Micah to describe the division that would come in our most intimate relationships as a result of following him in the latter days. The end result being that the unifying front is not in doctrine, but in leveraging this victimhood which is a key tactic of our culture currently being employed in various social issues. In many ways, the divide between the church is as sharp as the divide in our country, which leads me to believe that in both cases there is already a civil war well underway. Do you believe that? I do. I believe that that's exactly where we are. And I believe that that's the reason why the Holy Spirit has prompted me to write this book. I don't want to write this book. Who wants to read a book concerning persecution? But quite frankly, you better want to read it. Because if you don't, you're not going to be prepared. That's the whole point. My wife comes to me and she says, Chuck, why would you write a book like this? She knows why I'm writing it and she believes that it's right. She believes that it's necessary. On the other hand, she says, who do you think is going to read it? Well, I suppose Jesus could have said the same thing. Who is going to hear what I have to say? By the time he finished his ministry, he had no followers at all. Every one of them had fled. Every single one of them. Did you know that? Every single one had fled. Question, are you really walking with God? Would your kids believe that? I didn't say, are you really going to church? I said, are you really walking with God? There's a difference. And God wants us to walk with him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in in truth. It's a shame so he wants us to walk with him in spirit, friends, and in truth. So will we walk with him? Will we talk with him truly? Will he be able to tell us that 
we are his own, so that the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Let's conclude again, going back to Russell Watson, one more time, I'll walk with God. The question is, will I? So it is, my friend. You'll never walk alone if you're walking with God. Hold your head up high. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grismeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.